And so there I was arrested by the Capitol Police officers. I have to say I was totally inspired by the activists that I was arrested alongside. And in fact, there were nearly 200 of us. Welcome to the Ronan Project podcast, a show about Asian Americans in politics, rocking the boat, breaking the rules and taking on the big fights. I'm your host, Bill Wong. Buckle up. It's time for Ronan's to roll program. Hello, Ronan Nation. Thanks for joining our inaugural podcast. I'm so excited to have United States Congresswoman Judy Chu on the show today. It was an honor of a lifetime to have served as her chief of staff when she was elected to the California State Assembly from 2001 to 2006, where she led efforts to protect the health care safety net, authored landmark hate crime legislation, and passed a groundbreaking tax amnesty bill that produced $4 billion in state revenue without raising taxes. From 2006 to 2009, she served as one of California's 12 constitutional officers as a member of the State Board of Equalization. In 2009, Congresswoman Chu won a brutal special election to become the first Chinese-American woman elected to the United States Congress. Since then, she has trailblazed efforts on creative property rights, women's health, and Asian-American representation. She is the author of the Women's Health Protection Act and the chairwoman of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Hi, Congresswoman Chu. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. Well, thank you for having me here, and thank you for even doing this podcast. I understand this is uh, one of your first. It is. It's our inaugural podcast, and we wanted to start it off with somebody super important like you who's doing tremendous work in the United States Congress. Speaking of that, you've taken a leadership role in authoring the Women's Health Protection Act and recently participated in civil disobedience resulting in being arrested. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of being a woman of color taking on such a prominent role in this monumental issue? Well, first of all, let me say that when the Supreme Court issued their Dobbs decision, I was outraged, I was angry, and I was heartbroken. And I thought about the young women of today who now have less rights than their grandmother. Women who have had these rights for 50 years and now have had them taken away. And I thought about the 13-year-old who is raped but in a state where abortion is banned and where she maybe doesn't have the means or the money to go across state lines or the woman with an ectopic pregnancy who needs care right away, but doesn't have the time to go across state lines to get an abortion or the woman who may have three kids already and knows she can't financially afford another whose options are now diminished. And so that is what led me to take such a prominent role. I, I have been doing this actually since 2013. I could see that abortion rights were being attacked on the state level. We saw hundreds of laws being passed since 2011 to chip away at abortion rights by requiring abortion clinics to have their doors a certain width or a, a physician to have admitting privileges at a hospital, which is of course completely unnecessary or to have invasive ultrasounds. And that's when I first introduced the Women's Health Protection Act because I saw this day coming. This was in 2013 that I introduced it. And still, even though there was the leaked decision, when the actual Dobbs decision came down, I was still shaken to my core. And that's why I had to join hundreds of activists from across the country in an act of civil disobedience to protest this shedding of our longtime constitutional right. So we came together 
we marched by the U.S. Capitol. And when we got by the Supreme Court, we sat in the hot sun and blocked traffic. And so there I was arrested by the Capitol Police officers. I have to say I was totally inspired by the activists that I was arrested alongside. And in fact, there were nearly 200 of us that got arrested. Now, in terms of being a woman of color leading this effort, I am very proud that I can be an Asian American that shows that we can be leaders for the whole nation on issues like that. And I actually marveled at the fact that I was arrested alongside Mini Timuraju, who's a South Asian woman, who's the first woman of color to head NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League. Uh, we didn't deliberately do it, but we got arrested together. And um, it showed that women of color, and in particular, Asian American women, can play such an important and key role in ensuring that Americans can have their full constitutional rights. And I hope that by doing that, we can inspire other APIs to do the same thing. Yeah, it was actually amazing to watch you and Minnie get arrested. And in fact, the four first episodes of this podcast deal with Roe exclusively. It's amazing to see so many Asian American women at the forefront of this fight. So speaking of, uh, the WHPA did not pass uh, previously. You, you brought it back up. Now it just passed the House. So what what does the fight look like in the Senate and what can listeners do to, to help support uh, that effort to pass it? So I'm very proud that the Women's Health Protection Act did pass the House in September. It was right after that Texas abortion bounty hunting bill passed, and we were also shaken up by that. It passed the House and at the time was the most supported pro-choice and abortion rights bill passed in the history of Congress. We are at this point where the majority of Democrats in Congress are now pro-choice and for abortion rights. This is a major step forward. However, it was clear that so many people were shaken up by the Dobbs decision and did not remember that we had passed the Women's Health Protection Act in September, that we did it again. We got even more votes actually this time around. So I was proud of that. And of course, we know that this bill is stuck in the Senate. Actually, what I want to make people aware of though, is that the vote was close. It was 49 to 51. And in reality, in equal and democratic world, 50 votes should be enough to get the bill passed in the Senate. But they have this horrible rule, the filibuster, which requires 60 votes to get something passed. So it's a rule of the minority. Ten people basically can stop any bill from passing. That's why so many bills are stuck in the Senate. So we can change this around if we eliminate the filibuster, which I'm a huge proponent of. And in order to do that, we need to elect two more senators that will both eliminate the filibuster and also pledge to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. There are candidates like that out there, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin have already pledged to do so. If we do that, we have the 50 votes needed to 
get both accomplished, eliminate the filibuster and pass this bill, which would uphold our abortion rights. However, what we have to do on top of that is to ensure that we keep the House and keep the incumbent senators that we have right now, which is where the Asian American population comes in. We have certain seats in the House that rest on the vote of AAPIs that will only be successful if we have AAPIs that vote to keep our rights, such as abortion rights. For instance, in Orange County, we have seats that are currently held by Young Kim and Michelle Steele, who have both voted against abortion rights. But these seats are 20% Asian and 39% Asian, respectively. We have two incredible AAPI candidates running against them, Dr. Asif Mahmood and Jay Chen, who would, if elected, uphold our abortion rights. And that's why it's so important in ensuring that they get elected. But we also need to make sure we keep certain members of Congress that are in swing seats. For instance, Josh Harder and Mike Levin and Katie Porter, these are the swing seats of, seats of California. We have Andy Kim in New Jersey that we need to ensure remain in Congress. And on the Senate level, we have certain seats that have many, many Asians in the, their constituencies. That's Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada, who has over a million AAPIs in her state. Patty Murray of Washington has over 12% AAPIs in her state. And how about one seat that uh, is going to be very much contested? That's Mark Kelly of Arizona, who has over 5% of their districts being AAPI. So AAPIs could make that margin of difference in retaining those seats. Yeah, and I've also heard that AAPIs are very important in Georgia with Warnock's seat as well. It's tremendous that AAPIs have such a huge role this year. I think you know we're at the precipice of uh, really embracing our power as, as a political entity. As chair of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus, and the numbers have grown, can you talk about how important it is? For example, me being able to see you have access to the White House and seeing the president sign um, you know, budgets that have a tremendous amount of investment in the, in the Asian American community, as well as uh, start the, the ball rolling on the establishment of a national museum. You know, it was not too long ago where we were just trying to get the president to show up to an event. Now they're inviting you to the White House to announce these major policy uh, investments in the community. Like, how important do you think it is for our listeners to understand their role in politics and for Asian Americans? When I first got elected to Congress in 2009, there were nine APIs in Congress. Well, let me say this is better than what it was for Normanetta. There were three, but still nine was not enough. And that's why I made it my mission to increase the number of APIs in Congress and also just to increase the number of members of Congress who are, are members of KPAC because, you know, there are many members of Congress who absolutely want to be members of KPAC and show that they support their AAPI populations. So right now, 
we have a record 21 AAPI members of Congress, which is our highest number in history. And with our associate members, we actually have 77 members of Congress that are in KPAC. And never has it been so important to have this huge amount of support for AAPIs because we have gone through two and a half years of anti-Asian hate. We have gone through horrendous anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents. Now there've been 11,000 of them. But I know that when I started hearing about senior citizens being shoved to the ground to their deaths, people being stabbed like the, the Asian American family in Texas, where kids aged two and six were being stabbed just because they were Asian. I said, we have to do something about this. And this especially reached a crescendo when eight people were shot to death in Georgia at three anti-Asian spas where the shooter deliberately went there to kill Asian women. And in fact, six of the eight were Asian women that were killed. We in KPAC knew that we had to start fighting this at the very beginning. Uh, that's why we immediately called out instances of anti-Asian hate. We highlighted the stories of victims. We issued statements. We held press conferences and hearings. And of course, we worked for legislation. This was not easy, but this was incorporated in a bill that was introduced by Senator Maisie Hirono and Congressmember Ray Grace Meng, the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. I am very proud to have a portion of that in there with a bill that I co-authored with Don Beyer, that is the No Hate Act. And uh, these bills get special prosecutors to move hate crimes prosecutions along and also provides for a uh, hate crimes coordinator across the Department of Justice, also improves the reporting of hate crimes across all the local jurisdictions and provides training for local law enforcement in how to address hate crimes and actually provides grants for both the community and for local law enforcement in uh, fighting against hate crimes. Well, I'm very, very proud to say that this bill was signed into law. I was right there standing right behind President Biden last May a year ago when he signed this bill into law. But this year, we concentrated on something else, and that is we came to understand after all these hate crimes and incidents that many Americans do not understand anything about Asian Americans. Uh, they lump us all together. They don't understand that um, many of us have been generations in this country and born in this country and are very loyal Americans. And in fact, there's a very alarming survey that came out recently, which found that this year, Americans have become more and not less likely to suspect that Asian Americans are more loyal to the countries that they or their families immigrated from. This is the perpetual foreigner stereotype that we always have to combat. That's why we believe that educating the American public is very important. And we've pushed for uh, Asian curriculums to be included across school districts and colleges and universities, but we also pushed the museum bill introduced by Congressmember Grace Meng. It's the AAPI Museum Study Bill, 
which would start the process to have a national Smithsonian Museum devoted to AAPIs. And I was very, very proud just a couple of months ago to stand behind President Biden once again as he signed this bill into law. I just recently saw a social media post about somebody who was visiting the internment museum in, I think, Utah or something like that. And um, they, they ran across a white family and the white family was leaving and they said that we, we can't believe this is true. This has to be fake because our, our nation would never do such a thing. So there's, there's so much misinformation that's out there. I think having some type of documentation of it, I think is very important. And then also, um, I forgot what state it is, but there's a state out there that's banning a book in curriculum that, that talks about the internment process. Um, so yeah, I definitely do think that there's a coordinated and aggressive effort to erase our experience um, from American history and therefore not learn about the injustices that occurred. That's why I think you know podcasts and other content is so important to be able to really curate that history so that people can have easy access to history and context. Why it's so important to see Asian Americans in the roles such as yourself doing these types of things so that little girls growing up and say, yeah, I can be a congresswoman or I can be the vice president of the United States or, you know, someday be the president of the United States. I think that that's, you know, we live in a very visual society and being able to see and hear those types of things really is going to provide people the roadmap to be able Mm -hmm. to reclaim their power. Let me say a little bit more about that. I just imagine the AAPI Museum being built right there on the mall. And I just imagine tourists from everywhere, the Midwest, uh, the South, going into the museum, people who know nothing about Asian American history, but finally being able to see arresting visual displays uh, about our history and also about our contributions. The things that Asian Americans have done to contribute to this society And that's what really excites me. I do have to warn you, though, that a a Smithsonian Museum takes a minimum of eight years to get going. So so don't imagine it to be overnight. (laughs) But that's that's the kind of vision I see for the future. And also, there's something I'm very proud of that I must claim credit for, and that is pushing for the portrait of Patsy Takamoto Mink to be displayed in the halls of the U.S. Capitol. It's actually right across from the portrait of Shirley Chisholm. Congress member Patsy Takamoto Mink did an amazing thing. First, she got elected as the first woman of color ever to Congress. And also, she was the author of the bill that positively affects every woman in the United States, Title IX, which prohibits discrimination in education. This is why we have equity for women in sports in education right now. No, I think that's totally incredible. And I think that when most people think about Title IX, with no disrespect, I think that they think that a, a white woman was probably behind it just because of the general aspect of, of how history kind of seems to be written for us. And to be able to um, commemorate her in such a public way, I think is, is super important. I think that these types of of visual representations and symbolic recognitions of of the contributions really cement into our identity what what our potential and our responsibilities are uh, in the American democracy. We're, we're getting close to to when we have to sign off, but uh, you know, and as kind of going away, what do you think the next steps are for AAPIs? 
you know, whether they're donors, activists, political professionals, candidates, uh, to take our participation to the next level. Because, I mean, you've done a tremendous amount, but I think that we're at a crossroads of, you know, either more of the same or really stepping forward and, 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 and taking on more bolder action. We need AAPIs at all levels. For one thing, we need to always build the pipeline of our next bench of future leaders. And that means ensuring that there are programs to develop them. You know, a lot of our young APIs may not be used to political or governmental leadership or any kind of leadership, really, uh, because it's not something that has been ingrained into them by their parents who may be immigrants and may not be used to the system. So that's why we have to develop our own independent bench of individual leaders uh, through these programs, um, such as APACS, our Asian Pacific American Institute. But there are many programs across the United States. These programs have to be very much supported and enlarged so that young people can understand what it takes to be a leader, whether it's a corporation, a government office, or in elected office. We need people on all levels. We also need to have AAPIs in prominent senior staff positions. The, this is oftentimes where the important decisions are being made, and it's key to our community's success to have people there at that level and every level. On the fundraising side, we need AAPI donors to not just attend fundraisers and contribute, but also to build meaningful long-term relationships with the elected officials that they are supporting so that those officials understand our policy priorities so that we make an impact on what those elected officials ultimately do that will benefit our community. And lastly, we have to make sure that AAPIs that are leaders are not tokenized, that we're seen as leaders, not just for our organizations, for our nonprofits, but on a broader level as leaders for everybody. That's why someday I would like to see AAPIs as Speaker of the House, Majority Leader, as a member of the Supreme Court, or as President. Very powerful points. That is super great message to leave this show on. Well, that's it for today's show. Please check out the show notes for more information about how you can support passage of the Women's Health Protection Act and learn more about the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Thanks for listening in, Ronan Nation. We'll see you next week for a conversation with the CEO and president of Planned Parenthood Affiliates of California, Jody Hicks, and the state effort to protect access to safe abortion and family planning services. If you are inspired by the exploits of the amazing Asian American badasses on the Ronin Project podcast and want to find out how you can learn more about politics or help Asian American candidates, click on the link in the show notes to join the Ronin Nation's national progressive movement to inspire, organize, and empower Asian Americans. Until next time, Ronin's Roll Program.